Disputation Zusch, The Magicians of the Mountains, is a podcast series about an annual conference scheme gathering scholars, writers, artists and scientists for a weekend of conversations and lectures in the Alpine Mountains. In 1929, the Davos Disputation takes place. Actually, this was invented to reinvent the tourism industry in the region, to bring youngsters, it as students, to where Martin Heidegger shared his decisively modern emotional approach, while Ernst Cassirer's educated incarnation of the established Bildungsbürgertum, a concept so specifically German it didn't even made it into translation, um, was clearly considered out of fashion. This debate became seminal only years later, after millions of deaths had sharpened the eyes of the audience for the initial sideline of the encounter, that Kassira was Jewish and Heidegger had later on declared his sympathy for National Socialism. This year's Disputations takes this encounter in Davos, this continental divide, as Peter Gordon called it, or Weggabelung der Philosophie, so a crossroads of philosophy, as per Henning Ritter, as a starting point. 90 years ahead in Sush, 40 minutes away from Davos, with radical movements on the rise, once again in times of disorientation and disillusion, we are repeating the question that led the historical debate, was ist der Mensch? What is it to be human? Disputation Sush from the beginning has been a multidisciplinary endeavor, bringing together scholars and artists, philosophers and authors, neuroscientists and historians, thinkers who will be asking questions and counter questions circling around the possibilities for universal truth versus a relative view of human temporality and finitude. Rational thinking and the notion of man as symbolic animals, creating a universe of symbolic meanings versus our being in the world, perceiving the world via our relationship to time. This vast theme is broken down into several more specific discourses concerning especially the relationship of philosophy, politics, art and literature. Between Kassira's Ausdrucksraum, Darstellungsraum, Bedeutungsraum, so that is room for expression, representation, meaning, and Heidegger's mental state of fear as a central point for existence, tentative explorations into the role of humanities and art shall lead to an exchange of potentially contradicting but still complementary interpretations and explanations of the world we inhabit. So let us contemplate and dare to dispute, agree and agree to disagree, infused, enchanted, and potentially infuriated by the experience of these tall, grandiose mountains around us, these massive presences of time, accountants from the past whose shriveled skin is telling tales, a unique scenery for some unique ideas to be formulated by us in a mix of humbleness and exhilaration. Someone called it a pleasant sense of horror that was induced by these Alpine fellows. Jean-Jacques Rousseau referred to the giddiness that he greatly enjoyed, quote, provided that I'm safely placed, quote end. Sush is a safe place, a vessel for ideas. Let us treat ideas as suggestions rather than blueprints, and rather than seeking for answers, let's properly specify the questions in a first step. Episode three, Breaking the Waves.
Early one June morning, Mrs. Clarissa Dalloway leaves her house to buy flowers for the party that she's giving that evening. She walks across Hyde Park and she thinks to herself, she felt very young, at the same time unspeakably aged. She sliced like a knife through everything, at the same time was outside looking on. She had a perpetual sense as she watched the taxi cabs of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. She always had the feeling that it was very, very dangerous to live even one day. In her diary, Virginia Woolf compares her heroine's sense of the danger that even one day can hold to walking a tightrope over nothingness. And this is the way Virginia Woolf writes about this in her diary. This is 1921. Why is life so tragic, like a narrow piece of pavement over an abyss? Words she finds can soothe this fear. I look down, I feel giddy, I wonder how I'm ever to walk to the end. But why do I feel this? Now that I say it, I don't feel it. So the point is that working her novels or writing her novels allows her to keep this anxiety at bay. And nevertheless, even in her diaries, there's always a trace of unease because she says, with it all, how happy I am if it weren't for my feeling that it's a strip of pavement over an abyss, the strip being very narrow. So in her diaries, she admits that she's fascinated um, by her psychic illness, her gloomy melancholy, she realizes is in fact an assault on truth. So this is not about getting rid of um, psychic disturbances or about getting rid of a sense of nothingness as part of one's life. But these deep fits of depression invariably always revert back to her equally resolute acceptance of life. So she says, I meant to write about death, but only life came breaking in as usual. In viewing her psychic life as an oscillation, a movement between these two states, Wolf is concerned with a similar claim, and this is the first philosophical point made by Hegel in his thoughts on the night of the world, die Nacht der Welt. Both conceive of the subject as separate from and thus the limit to the pure nothingness of primordial night, Throughout our early existence, this is Hegel's point, we merely delineate ourselves from the emptiness which attracts us and threatens to extinguish us by incessantly redefining ourselves in reference to our knowledge of this nothingness. In his lectures on Hegel, Alexandre Kujev contends that the ultimate foundation of human existence and the source and origin of human reality is non-being or the power of negativity, which realizes itself and manifests itself only by the transformation of the given identity of being into the creative contradiction of this dialectical or historical process of becoming. So we have a becoming in which there can only be being in and through action. So Hegel's notion of the night of the world and the psychological states that Virginia Woolf describes in her novels are very close to one another. The romantic philosopher Hegel compares the pure self which is not yet distinct, with a pure night containing, and I quote him, everything in its simplicity, an infinite wealth of ideas, images, none of which occur to it now or are now present. For the individual subject to posit herself as distinct, in turn, means making use of the creative power that will allow her to retrieve this multitude of things that are carried in the night, or in this archive, to allow these images to fall back into its darkness as well. And what I find interesting is that Wolf, probably not having read Hegel, makes a similar claim for the power of her poetic 
language, because she, her point is that through her writing, she sheds light on fictional worlds that have been stored in the darkness of her imagination. So you can think of her imagination very much along the lines of what Hegel is interested in when he talks about the night of the world as this repository for all things that could be thought. Um, and it is this that she taps into in her novel writing. So the act of undoing worlds in the course of her writing allows her to posit herself with but also against this primordial pure nothingness. Or you could say that her aesthetic work corresponds to the way the subject emerges as the result of an act of free creation. And again, if we think of what um, Hegel is doing, um, one can say that this is a dialectic movement which contains the nothingness which the human subject is in its being, but which manifests itself as an action that is both a negation and a creative act. So we have negating and creative power of human subjectivity. That's also one of the seminal themes of Wolf's novels, because what her novels repeatedly put on display is how, owing to the act of writing, this chaotic multiplicity um, of things that are not yet distinguished, this is brought to light. And she also understands her writing as an action which negates the phenomenological world and her position in it precisely because what she does as she writes is to produce a text which is both with and against, and I'm now wondering whether it's also kind of parallel world too, but also related to this reality. There is, however, a really important contradiction inherent in her writing. On the one hand, she claims that outside an existence that is constantly in the process of becoming and creating the individual subject is nothing. On the other hand, for the limited duration of the individual's life, her or his singular existence must be distinguished from nothingness, from non-being. Um, so she's concerned with the aesthetic text's mirroring of the creative undoing of the self as constitutives for so much um, conceptions of modern subjectivity. But I want to move towards the other theoretical thinker, namely Heidegger. And this has to do with the way that anxiety is so important for Clarissa Dalloway's way of thinking about herself when she says that it is very, very dangerous to live even one day, and yet take the sense of fear or nothingness and turn it into something creative. And, and we have a similar thing, as I will show in a moment, also in the waves, where it's precisely the knowledge of human transience that inspires a form of self-determination on the part of the characters in the waves. So we have this fear of death that is constantly transformed in Virginia Woolf's work into a creative energy. And in fact, one could claim that all of Woolf's protagonists tarry with this sense of fear. We have this constant process of becoming only to disappear again, individual characters become distinct voices and shapes, and then vanish again in the overall fabric of the text. So we can think of Wolf the way that Wolf thinks of her characters and their worlds as emerging out of nothingness on two levels, because this nothingness involves what I call an ordinary night out of which day materializes and to which it returns, but it also involves 
this much more primordial sense of nothingness um, that contains everything. This was the um, Hegelian idea. Um, and that being an act of aesthetic creation whenever we return to this more primordial sense um, of non-being rather than just the simple, it's not day, so it's night. At the same time that her novels were published, namely in the, 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 these big novels were published in the 20s and early 30s, um, Heidegger develops his conception of human existence as one that also foregrounds the night side. The seminal question that he poses is why there is being and not simply nothing. And for me, the really interesting line of association uh, to Wolf's aesthetics is that Heidegger also conceives of being from the position of nothingness. He maintains that the final question provokes the objection that an inquiry which attempts to recall being by way of the nothing returns in the end to a question concerning beings. So what is the status of this nothing or non-being for Heidegger? It cannot be posited as being, it cannot be Zeyendus, given that it is distinct from all phenomenological manifestations, much as the ordinary chaos is distinct from that act of separation that brought with it the difference between night and day. So nothingness cannot be turned into an object because, and this is what Heidegger says, nothing is the negation of the totality of what is, that which is absolutely not. And that is to say, that which is completely without distinction. But this nothingness manifests itself in moods such as anxiety, which, according to Heidegger, is so unsettling precisely because it is an indeterminate state. So we have this dread that finds articulation primarily in the feeling that something is uncanny, even though one cannot say with certainty to what this feeling of unease might be attributed. And this is where I find the interesting connection, because we could say that this is comparable to the thought that overcomes Clarissa as she walks through Hyde Park when she says it's so dangerous to live just one very day. Heidegger describes uncanny dread as the sense that, and again, this is Heidegger, all things and we with them sink into a kind of indifference. So what's important for him isn't simply the disappearance of things, but the fact that this withdrawal of what is in totality crowds around us in dread. And we could say that Clarissa's anxiety is such that due to her solitude, she seems to have vanished from the phenomenological world completely, very much along the way that Heidegger describes bouts of dread as feeling suspended with no ground beneath one's feet, so that what overcomes one, and that's the connection for me between Wolf and Heidegger, is um, just nothingness. Dread holds us in suspense, this is Heidegger, because it makes what is in totality slip away from us. And he adds, the trepidation of this suspense, where there is nothing to hold on to, this, in this trepidation of suspense, pure design is all that remains. However, if this nothing is revealed in the uncanniness of dread, it's not as an object. So we can't think of nothingness as something objectified. Instead, the dread doesn't consist in capturing nothingness or containing and comprehending it. That would be making it too distinct. Instead, the uncanniness of dread reveals nothingness because it provides evidence for the presence that nothing, which allows for the transformation of the human subject into her pure being or Dasein. It's the idea that through the experience of nothingness, we also 
become or get a sense of being here. So the vanishing of the world that Clarissa describes as being out, out, far out, to see and alone, allows her, this is my argument, to experience very much a similar kind of psychic strangeness. And what both Wolf and Heidegger are so interested in is this, these are moments of experiencing Dasein that are normally unnoticed because of the distractions of the ordinary every day. So one can say in a similar manner, Heidegger claims that only in the clear night of dreads and nothingness is what is an investigation revealed in all its original overtness. The experience of the uncanny allows the subject to understand its existence, which is to say that she is being and not nothing. So the idea of that sein und nicht nicht sein is something, being and not being nothing, is what comes together for both Heidegger and Wolf in the sense of dread or anxiety. But what's also interesting, if we want to think about the more Heideggerian side to Wolf's work, is that in contrast to Hegel's equation of pure being and pure nothing, Heidegger not only thinks nothingness as the indeterminate counterpart to being, so being and then nothingness as the two fitting together, but also as the prerequisite to which it remains related. Because he does say being and nothing hang together. And they hang together not because they resemble each other, rather they're mutually dependent. And they're mutually dependent because the question regarding the specific being in accordance with its peculiar possibilities, that is to say its infinite, its finite manner, can only be understood from the position of precisely the nothingness that it's predicated on. So only in conjunction with a point of origin from which it is separated, but which always remains inscribed in it or always remains part of it, can being be conceived. So if the question of being, sein, is inextricably linked with that of Nichtsein oder Nichts, Heidegger argues it follows that it must itself have been put into question by this question. Nothingness concerns human existence at its very core. In those states of anxiety, which Wolf calls assaults of truth, the subject finds her being projected onto this nothingness. In moments of uncanny dread, the subject is faced with questions that put into question her being because they draw attention to death as the limit of all determined being. So if in her diary, Wolf notes that while meaning to write about death, life came breaking in as usual, we could also say the reverse is comparable with Heidegger's assertion that psychic distress triggered by dread also awakens a sense of wonder. And remember, Staunen is such an important word for Heidegger and for Wolf. This is Heidegger. Only because of wonder, that is to say, the revelation of nothing, he says, can we seek for reasons and proofs in a definite way. So he also connects wonder with that sense of nothing. So we have to understand that when he talks about this nothing, we don't see this as a terrifies. This is not horror movie nothing. This is more nothing as opposed to distraction of every day. So my critical point in bringing into dialogue um, Virginia Woolf's aesthetics with Heidegger's philosophy is to underscore how both think of life 
from a position of nothingness or non-being. And that implicitly, they also think from a position that I want to align with the primordial night, out of which and against which light, language, world, self, and aesthetic forms are born. So for both, there is an acknowledgement of nothingness, um, but that doesn't mean a dissolution of the world. Instead, this acknowledgement of nothingness supports a disposition for the ordinary in which day and night, becoming and vanishing, are contained. So they're kind of, it's kind of an, a mutual implication. It's not, and here they're very different from a kind of romantic and even Bataillon desire for self-dissolution. It's more acknowledging that nothingness as a way of moving back into both the creation of art or the production of um, language and as something that realizes that this nothingness is always part of this process of shaping or forming. By posing questions about nothingness that question her own aesthetic project, and this is my point, Wolf is not just the figure we fantasize about in films like The Hour, but in fact is really writing the philosophy of modernity. She writes with and against all of this dread, all of this sense of nothingness, being held in nothingness. Her aesthetic project resolutely leads from madness back into the day, from the night back into the day, giving voice to precisely the wonder which you can only experience when you've left the day, when you've left the ordinary, when you are fully hineingehalten sein into nichts. And I want to illustrate this now by um, giving you a reading of her last big novel, The Waves. The sun had not yet risen. The sea was indistinguishable from the sky, except that the sea was slightly creased, as if a cloth had wrinkles in it. Gradually, as the sky whitened, a dark line lay on the horizon, dividing the sea from the sky, and the gray cloth became barred with thick strokes moving one after another beneath the surface, following each other, pursuing each perpetually. So she evokes this incredibly vibrant image, actually. She's kind of doing painting with words. What follows from this sentence of the slow emergence of a line of horizon is a tableau of six friends, and each of these friends, they never really become psychological characters. Um, they're really only sketches, and what she does in the novel is she measures their life by the movement of the sun along the horizon. Each episode is introduced with a new description of the change in the seascape. So in the waves, the horizon renders visible the fact that the night leaves its traces in the world um, of shapes and figures that emerge out of the night, and just the same way that the horizon line emerges out of this indistinct space. The horizon is an undefined line, markedly separate from both heaven and sea, and at the same time, it draws our gaze into the depth of the seascape towards this impossible vanishing point. 
as such a pronounced line of demarcation, and I hope you're seeing now how I, I'm trying to suggest that Wolf is really integrating Heideggerian language into the way she paints the scenes and her characters. So as such, this pronounced line of demarcation, the horizon visually captures the transition between sky, sea, and beach. That is to say, also the transition between dark and light, life and death. So along this horizon, the text creates a world in which the six friends turn into individuals. They separate from each other, lead different lives, they come together again, and they really make up the multifaceted sense of a human consciousness. And Wolf repeatedly compares this to the breaking of waves. So we have a sustained exchange between order and chaos, produces differences, only then to dissolve them again, because we have a feeling that these characters aren't really distinct from each other. And then everything keeps vanishing into the abyss of nothing or into these pure textual signs, because we realize they're just creations. They're just letters on a page, really. And we hear the sound of one voice, which is the voice of Wolf. So the changes that occur in the lives of these six friends are measured by the movement, as I've said, of the sun across the sky. And the process occurs in reference to this horizon as the privileged point of orientation because Wolf understands this line as the mark of separation that sustains the law of earthly fragility and this constant exchange between life and death, day and night. So on the diegetic level of the text, it announces the rising and the setting of the sun, but on the extra diegetic, the non-story side of the text, it demonstrates that no aesthetic reproduction of world can move beyond this line into pure nothingness. So although I'm saying she moves more and more into the purely abstract aesthetic, it's still of the world because it's still language and it still has reference to the world. So textuality is always something where there is a threshold that can't be moved, beyond which we can't move. So the world, with all its manifold shapes, separates from this threshold, distinguishes itself as the sun rises, casts its shadows on the world, and makes everything more visible. And then it moves towards pure darkness, where we simply can't see the separation between the figures anymore. Like the contours and colors of the world that slowly take shape, the consciousness of these six friends is also constantly in the process of developing. Initially, they still have to um, develop their identities. Some of them, in fact, are particularly, and they are the characters that are closer to Wolf herself, riddled with senses of anxiety. Um, but overall, as their sense of self and their identities develop, they keep oscillating between the sense of anxiety, am I something, am I nothing, and coming up with certain statements, this is what I do, this is what I think. So while the sun rises, the world which these six characters reconfigure um, is conceived as an enchantment of becoming and vanishing, and we get different scenes of what it is that these characters do, which I'm not going to um, go into, because what I'm interested in is the end of the novel, the friends meet one more time, and upon leaving, they've met in a restaurant, they always meet in restaurants, this is a good thing. Rada voices the way that the shared days that they still have to live in the following manner, she says, pity returns as they emerge into the moonlight, like the relics of an army, our representatives going every night here or in Greece to battle and coming back every night with their wounds, their ravaged faces. Now light falls on them again. They have faces. They become Susan and Bernard, Ginny and Neville, people we know. So in this light, determined by darkness around them, these Individual faces show traces of a passage of time. 
the distinct identity, the shapes they've taken on, they're clearly transient. They stay together for a moment longer, sharing with each other, um, and then they separate again. Um, the world is now a world of sunset, and it's the perfect stage for us to remain with Bernard, who is the elderly writer figure, the one, in a sense, that the novel is most interested. Um, he revisits each of his friends in turn. He tries to figure out um, what it is that he could understand about them. He says that his work of writing is tantamount to using his poetic language to retrieve these friends from their formlessness, to give them a kind of shape on the page. Um, and then during the night walk through London, which ends the waves, the world around him once more threatens to vanish into complete darkness. So we have a radical sense of solitude that overcomes him, inspiring in him the wish to dissolve into nothingness as well. And he says, let me cast and throw away this veil of being, this cloud that changes with the least breath, night and day, and all night and all day. However, he notices that during his deliberations, a change has taken place. And this is so typical for Wolf. You think you're moving in one direction, and then something happens. An indeterminate light has appeared in the nocturnal sky. And, this and it's important that it's indeterminate. It's once again on the horizon line, of course. Bringing with it a new turn is in his interrogation of nothingness. And he says, but there is a kindling in the sky, whether of lamplight or of dawn. So he doesn't want to call this sense that the day is breaking dawn for, and he adds, what is dawn in the city to an elderly man? The whitening of the sky, which he anticipates without actually seeing it, heralds, again, this is his language, some sort of renewal, another day, another general awakening. And what I'm interested in here is that he sees this light, he doesn't quite know what to say it, but he knows that something new is beginning. Um, this gives evidence to the conviction Wolf condenses in the seascape vignettes that are interspersed throughout her narrative. Yet, this is the eternal renewal, the incessant rise and fall, and fall and rise again. So the renewal awaiting him is a day in which the night remains imminent. That's the whole point of the dialectic that I've been sketching for you. His desire to continue living with utmost intensity is oriented on death as the horizon that delimits all being. He speaks his final words in defiance of the fragility that he knows that he cannot deny. So on the one, he defies it, and yet he knows that it's very much part of his being, his sign. And um, one can say that in other novels, Wolf does a similar thing of bringing shapes out of um, chaos. But in The Waves, the emphasis is on acknowledging the fragility um, of all coherence and stability that goes together with identity formation and also with writing. Um, and it means that the world that The Waves draws into appearance is not disengaged from this nothingness, but rather it carries on this nothingness. So while darkness surrounds the rising and the setting of the sun, it also flares up during the day. Wolf's novels begin with a description of the horizon when the sun had not yet risen, so that the sea was almost indistinguishable from the sky. But she also points out that under the surface of the water, which, as the sun gradually whitens, transforms into a separate entity, there is a movement that comes into being as though light had inhaled life into the water. 
That was the beginning of the novel. At the end of the novel, we do not return to this description of the pure night from which the world and poetic language emerged forth. Although Bernard walks into a night, remember where there's an indistinguishable light which he doesn't quite know what to call, as he walks into a night at whose end he will eventually find death, the last sentence of the novel doesn't announce his demise. You know, we might expect that we would get that. Instead, we end where we began, and where did we begin? We begin on a note of indeterminacy. The waves broke on the shore. So the kindling in the sky ushers in a twilight that can either lead to his death or into a new day. Conceived as a threshold, this light on the horizon inspires an expectation that something may still be achieved. It also points towards fragility because in all cases, change is imminent. Everything could either fall into profound darkness or the light could grow stronger. So my point is here that the waves end, this novel, The Waves, ends where it began, with a wave of separation that transcends the pure nothingness from which it also draws its vital energy. That is to say, something is announced that is already caught up in a process of vanishing. Even as it is about to appear, it's already about to disappear again. At the close of this, um, this strange night that Bernard walks into, the emphasis is placed that something keeps happening. The visual trope of the waves that destroy and bring forth mobile and transient shapes renders legible this dialectic that I've been sketching for you. So for Wolf to think of the day in terms of nothingness um, also means that her writing comes out of this dialectic. Both life and writing form a passage over an abyss, this small, this very small plank she keeps talking about. Um, the shape that her poetic language draws from formless chaos vanish back into this abyss, and yet there is never simply nothing, but always the containment of this nothing in and by the writing, the containment of the night in and by the day. So in the beginning, there's always already a horizon, even if it's only very faintly visible, and at the end, before everything falls into complete darkness, a new wave breaks why I felt we did such a dishonor to her by focusing so much on her madness, is that what her novels are really about are not madness and death, but rather what I like to call a double awakening. And what do those two awakenings look like? The one awakening directs us towards the experience of very much in the Heideggerian sense, being projected into nothingness. And the other one, and that's why I find her actually such an optimistic writer, directs us toward a new dawn. For Wolf, writing means positing the night as the spirit that reigns over the ordinary every day. Its textuality draws our attention less to mimetic representation. That's why I say everything is always dissolved back into one voice, a purely aesthetic, verbal um, form. Um, but this is erected over and directed at the abyss of nothingness, which, as I've tried to emphasize for you, is something, according to Wolf, we cannot not acknowledge. And so she writes in a diary entry from 1921, when one leaves a life work at 60, one dies. Death, at least, must seem to be there, visible, expectant. And this is some 20 years before she commits suicide. One ought to work, never to take one's eyes from one's work. And then, if death should interrupt well, it is merely that one must get up and leave one's stitching. 
one won't have wasted a thought on death. So one could say that she really did not waste her thoughts on this power of death, that instead she used her writing to celebrate its creative force. So rather than thinking always of her in relationship to this suicide, which had a much more complicated background than we tend to um, look at, I think it's more interesting to focus on how nothingness becomes a kind of fragile presence that the textuality performs, and that this is really evidence that her work was never for madness or night, but that it was always in and for the day. Disputation Sush is hosted by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. It is chaired by Mareike Dittmer. Speakers at Disputation 2019 were Alexandra Mir, Timotheus Vermeulen, Tadeusz Slavek, Elisabeth Bronfen, Markus Steinweg, Jörg Heiser and Mark Sedler. Editing and Sound Design, Elena Ziesa. The Magicians of the Mountains is produced by Museum Sush, ArtStations Foundation CH. More information can be found online at museumsush.ch.